Okay, we are in our Cephas series, and that's the series on the Apostle Peter. Been a really cool, I think, journey. I love this guy. Uh, so I am in Luke 22. If you want to turn there on your phone or Bible or whatever you like. Uh, we're, in, we're going to look at two passages in Luke 22, and we're going to look at one final passage, just one verse in Luke 24, sort of to conclude. Um, last week we talked about the calling of Peter. Uh, we looked at how Jesus called him, where Jesus called him, what was happening in Peter's life. This week we're actually going to look at the sifting of Simon Peter. The sifting of Simon Peter. And you may be in here today going, Michael, I'm being sifted. We don't bake bread too much these days, but in the old school days, when you bake bread, you have to sift it to get the lumps out of the flour. And that's what we're talking about here, sifting. So, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you are feeling sifted this morning? By a marriage? By a family? By a health issue? By something at work? By something in your own life? Maybe your own consistent poor choice, huh? We get sifted. So let's take a look at the sifting of Simon Peter here in Luke 24. And uh, then we're going to talk about it and unfurl it from there. So I am in Luke 22, starting in verse 24. Now, let me just give you a little context before we read. Uh, This is the Last Supper. So what happened right after the Last Supper? Who remembers? Jesus went out and was crucified. That's exactly right. So they're literally sitting on the upper, probably the upper tier of a house, second story. They're in a quiet room, Jesus and the apostles, and they've just um, eaten together. He's just said the cup and, and the new covenant and the blood. He's just sort of shared all that with them, but they have no clue what's going on, all right? They're just still boneheads. Don't get it, much like me some days. So here's where we pick up in verse 24. A dispute among them arose as to which of them was considered to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves." For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sat at the table? But I am among you, I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in all of my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." I'm going to pause there, we're going to talk a little bit, then we're going to go back and read this next passage, all right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we open the word today, Father, somehow may I disappear, may the seats, the environment, may everything sort of fade, and may the preeminence of you, Lord Jesus, rise. For Lord, it is about you. Father, would you transform us today? Would you touch hearts, lives, marriages, families, workplaces? Holy Spirit, would you interact with us in and around your word. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1999, um, I graduated right here from Hoggard High School. Too funny that we've come full circle and I'm back. Uh, I also started over at UNCW, um, and I actually have a professor who's sitting in the audience today, Dr. Rick Olson over here, and he taught me uh, English, no, 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 intro to communication. A lot, lot. okay, he taught me a lot. (laughs) Um, He... (laughs) 
So I started at UNCW in 1999, and I was a uh, speaker for a, a couple of the Christian groups. And so the Christian groups got together, and they said, um, hey, there's this campaign that happened up at NC State, and we want to reproduce it here. And I said, okay. And they said, at NC State, we did this thing called I Agree with Dave. And so they said, we'd like you to be the Dave, and we're going to call it I Agree with Mike. And I said, okay. And my experience with most Christian groups is that they sort of talk big, and they say we're going to blah, 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 and it doesn't happen all that much, and you're kind of like, oh, well, we all just go home. So I said, yeah, sure, and I, I totally didn't believe that they were going to do all that much with this I Agree with Mike campaign. So I said, sure, no problem. But I did say, I'm a freshman. Like, why, why? pick a senior, pick a junior, pick somebody else. I have more hair then, but. Um, so they asked me to do it. And what happened that next week, it was actually about a month out, but they had planned and planned and planned, and all the Christian groups got together. And all of a sudden, um, this I Agree with Mike appeared the week of this campaign everywhere. It was everywhere. Like, I was like, wow, the Christian groups actually showed up and did what they said. Imagine that. But it's like chalked on the sidewalks. It's on the boards. People are wearing these like fluorescent yellow shirts. I agree with Mike. And the whole point was that every day they were just plastering this all over the campus. And of like Thursday or Friday of that week, we were all going to come together at the amphitheater and I was going to get to share Jesus. So it happened. I couldn't believe it happened. These Christian groups surprised me no end. I was like, wow, they followed through and they did it. So the week kept going on, and, and it was being talked about in classes. Like, I remember sitting in classes, and people are going, who is Mike? And what is this I agree with Mike business? And I'm sitting in the back, like, oh, so they made me a shirt. I am Mike. <laughs> so I got up uh, at the amphitheater, and we had the best time, and I just preached the gospel. I just shared the gospel. I shared some of my story, and my favorite thing that happened was this guy named Lucas. In the middle of it, uh, he was smoking a joint in the back, <laughs> and in the middle of it, he comes running down yelling, Aah! and waving his hands, and we're on this amphitheater with a little pond behind me, and he runs right past me. I thought he was going to tackle me for a minute. He runs right past me and does a belly flop in the lake behind me. And we all paused and gave him a big applause. And then I went back to preaching the gospel. And I actually, somebody took him over and I got to hang out with him that night. It was amazing. But I would tell you, if I was very authentic and open, I would say I was walking with the Lord uh, powerfully or authentically as I could as a young 18 and 19-year-old. But I would also tell you that I was full of self-confidence. We're beginning to study a guy who has a big problem. And his problem is actually his self-confidence. Simon Peter, I love him. He's boisterous. He's loud. He's the first one to speak. He's the first one to raise his hand. He's the first one to shake Jesus and go, no, 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 we got to do it this way. He's always out there, but he's so full of himself. What's interesting in the passage we just read is the Lord Jesus is literally being so pressed. He's sitting at a table. He's reclining at a table. He's preparing to go to the cross and die. And he's got these 12 men who are gathered around him, and they are still laboring under the delusion that all the people were when they sang Hosanna. Remember that message if you were here? 
So they're convinced that Jesus is going to come in and he's going to set up a kingdom that looks more like King David. They're going to, he's going to wipe the Romans out and he's going to set up his king, his kingdom. And, and what they literally begin to argue about was who's going to be the greatest. So the disciples get into a fight right after the first communion happened, right? The first communion, Jesus is literally getting ready to go to the cross. He is so pressed. The next scene is, is moving to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is pressed until he sweats blood. And what are the disciples doing? They are arguing over the positions that they're going to get in this new kingdom that they think Jesus is about to set up. They are in a fuss over who's greatest. I'm greater than you, Matt. You're greater than me. They're fussing. They are engaging. And you almost can't believe it. It's like, what is happening here? And I would say these guys are still not ready. They are so full of themselves. That self-confidence i got to develop this thought a little bit more, but I just want to kind of throw out a stray thing that we'll come back to. But as parents, we often think our job is to instill self-confidence in our kids, uh, instill self-esteem in our kids. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm totally authentic with you. How do we help our kids um, uh, love and appreciate who God created them to be, but help them also understand as little people that they need to walk with Jesus and be confident in him, not them? I think that's the goal. So here we have these 12 guys, we have Jesus, and they're all sitting around, and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest, and then Jesus sort of flips it all and basically says the greatest is the one who serves, but let's read what he says next in verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus looked at him and said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Shortly after that I Agree With Mike campaign that we did, I went through a seven-year sifting because I was full of self-confidence. And the purpose of a sifting is to bring you to the end of yourself to where you're, you're truly acknowledging uh, in a surrendered posture before God his lordship and that you can't do it without him. That's what the gospel's about. That's what Christianity is about. It's coming to the Lord Jesus, surrendering your life, and letting him live his life in you and through you. I've got a uh, dear friend who's in the Navy SEAL program. We actually just saw him, I I guess it was a year ago now, but out in California. And the Navy SEAL program, the military program, at some level tries to mimic this. They try to break you down so they can then build you back up in this confidence of the unit. And I don't think that's necessarily negative, but I think where this originated is really in the heart of God that he has to bring you to the end of yourself. We're going to be interactive today. We have to bring, he has to bring you to the end of yourself so that he can fill you and live his life in you and through you. That's, the, that's sort of the point. I read a poem this week uh, that was fascinating to me, and it's about when God wants to use a person. I want to read it to you. It's called, When God Wants a Man. So I'd also translate it, When God Wants to Use a Woman, When God Wants to Use a Person. Here it goes. When God wants to drill a man, 
and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him, but every act induces him to try his splendor out. God only knows what he's about. See, God set out to use Simon Peter, this fisherman, but in order to bring him to the point where he could truly be the first pastor of the first church, not the first pope, but the first pastor of the first church, he had to bring him to where he was broken, his self-confidence was ended, and he was able to be confident in King Jesus. So I want to bring you to my first point, and I've kind of said it already, but I think we have it back here. But Peter's problem is his self confidence. Now, if we talk about self for just a minute, I think our, our, our self and the, sort of the way I'm using it is this um, self-seeking, um, entitled, um, you're, everything's about you, you sort of think the entire world revolves around you, you're a little bit on the narcissistic side, it's all about me. And if I'm honest, and probably if we're all honest, and we all just sort of like dug in our own hearts, we'd probably go, yeah, I'm probably like that a good bit of the time. Marriage becomes what can I get, not what can I give. Man, I sit with couples and we're doing counseling and I'm like, oh gosh, y'all don't get it. Like y'all don't get it. Oh, we're getting married. We're so excited. And I, we're this is the tool that God is going to use. This is the chisel that God is going to use to bring you to the end of your own selfishness so you can learn how to serve and love another imperfect human being. Oh, yes. It's beautiful. Because until we really learn to bow our knee before the Lord, until we really learn how to serve and love on another person when they don't deserve it, I don't even think we know love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. See, love isn't when someone deserves it. Love actually starts when someone doesn't deserve it and you choose to shut your mouth and serve and love, and meet them anyway. And you enter in going, how can I help? How can I love? How can I honor? How can I serve? Not what can I get. But a lot of times when we approach life, marriage, ministry, even work, we approach it with our own self-confidence. I would actually say this is the enemy of marriage. This is the enemy of you being promoted at work. This is the enemy of, of all the things that the Lord intends to do and bless you with in your life is this sort of exaltation of self. And yet we live in a society that is consumed with it. Our bathroom mirrors are like how big? And now they're getting to be these cool little rectangle things or circle things, I think. But still, we have these huge mirrors. It's all about how do we look? Gosh, my hair fell out. I need some Rogaine. I see you, Steve. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <clears throat> Renowned uh, theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, the worst thing that can happen to a person is to succeed before they're ready. 
I'm afraid that had I gone back to my 18, 19, 20-year-old self and done what I thought I was going to do, which was finish up college, uh, knock out seminary, and plant a church, I'd have had a train wreck five or ten years later, a really serious train wreck. Instead, the Lord took me on a painful journey of sifting. It was a combination of my own sin. It was a combination of other people's sin. It was a combination of what was going on around me. But it was a painful seven years. And so guess what? When it came time to plant a church 12 years, 13 years later, guess what I said? No. The 18-year-old Michael, what was I saying? Oh, I'm ready. I am ready. Look at me. My hair stands up. I am cool. I serve. <laughs> it came time to plant a church this last time, and I'm sitting with our elder board going, I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I'm not experienced enough. And I think when you get to that point, Christ Jesus is suddenly able to use you. Because you're to this point where your life is coming into surrender under the lordship of Christ Jesus, and you're going, Lord, I can't. Think of Moses a second. I love the story of Moses. He gets raised in Pharaoh's house. He's probably a beautiful human. He's popular. He rides around in his chariot. Who knows? He's got this sense that he's supposed to deliver his people. And he first does it in his flesh by, anybody remember? Killing somebody. That's right. And then he's got to go do what for 40 years? Anybody remember that? Walk in the desert. I don't know if you've been to Israel. You have an opportunity in 2020. You need to sign up over here with Clive and Ruth. We've got 13 slots for Sirius if you want to go. You've got a chance to go. But have you ever been to Israel? That is a rough, gnarly desert. And to wander around that thing with a bunch of stinky sheep, meh, for 40 years. And that's God's idea of preparing a person for ministry. We could talk about the Apostle Paul and this gap of time from the Emmaus Road experience to when he really started ministry. 8, 10, 12 years, depending on how you look at it. Pressing. Breaking. Surrendering. We could talk about Peter, because we just read it. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. My second point is sifting is God's way of helping us say goodbye to this self. So long. I'd prefer not to see that guy again. Can I be honest? That guy doesn't help my marriage very much. God doesn't help our church very much. But what does is when this surrendered attitude before Christ comes in and it becomes about how can I give, how can I love, how can I serve, how can I engage, and everything changes. We could go through so much of the Bible on this. We could talk about Joseph and Potiphar's house and in prison. We could talk about David in the caves. We could talk about Abraham wandering, not able to conceive, and then having to go sacrifice his son in a mountain. We could go on and on and on. Every person in the Bible that God used powerfully, men and women, were sifted. So let's talk about sifting for just a minute. Not every trial is divinely allowed sifting. Not everything you go through is sifting. Some trials we bring on ourselves. You know that? I do that a lot. I stop and I'm in the middle of something and I went, oops, I did it again. <laughs> some of y'all don't know Britney Spears, so you can't <laughs> laugh at that. But some of you do. 
I do that all the time. Trip into something and go, oh my goodness. Sometimes the people around us that we love most bring trials on us, don't we? Don't they? They're choices. Sometimes we end up in situations, and some difficulties are just a result of living in a fallen world. Let me, let me put this kind of in context for us for a second. Um, when, a, when a Jewish uh, family or Hebrew family sits down to pray before a meal, they have a really fascinating prayer that they say. They actually praise, I want to read it to you word for word. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe. Isn't that fascinating? King of the universe. Now, John 14, 30, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. Matthew 4, 8, and 9, when Jesus is being tempted, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give you all of this, all of this splendor, all of this majesty, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, Satan is the king of this world. Christians have this skewed a little bit. Because you get Christians all the time going, um, how come bad things happen to good people? A better question is, how come anything good happens in our world ever? Because this world is currently ruled by Satan. Read Job 1 and 2. It's worth the study. Beautiful interaction between Satan and God. And you actually see this hedge. It's almost like an angelic or what, some kind of hedge around Job. And Satan comes in and, and God basically lifts the hedge. And suddenly Satan brings all hell against Job. His whole life collapses. Now, am I saying that everything negative that happens to you is Satan or the enemy? No. Some of it's just you're in a fallen world. But every good thing that happens to you is a result of the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus. That is his hand. But we could actually look at all the war, at all the hatred, at all the school killings, at all the divorce, at all the fussing, at all the, you name it, childhood hunger. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on. And I would say, yes, of course, because Satan is ruling the earth. Now, it's not forever. You read the end of the book, guess who's coming back? King Jesus. And guess what he's going to do? Topple Satan. God has no opposite. Satan is not God's opposite. No, 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 no. This is a season where he has allowed Satan to rule. And you may be being sifted today. Say that with me. I might be being sifted. Ready? One, two, three. I might be being sifted. The question is, when things get tough, in your marriage, in your work, with your kids, with your grandkids, with your neighbor, you fill in the blank, can you bear into the sifting as a way of God helping you bring you to the end of you? Kind of a mouthful. Or are you one of those who might be like me, who wants to grump, I don't like Come on, we like to whine, don't we? We like to fuss. It, it hurts sometimes. The sifting is painful. I don't want to minimize the pain, but when God brings a tough situation into your life, it literally can be his sovereign purpose to shape you and mold you so that he can release you. Does God want you to suffer? No. Does God cause the suffering? No. In Job's life, did God create the pain? No. What did he do? He lifted the hedge. Very, very different. 
I sat in a small group one time, and there was a dear, sweet friend of ours who had a, has a child with immense um, special needs. And one of the person, people in the small group was like, God made your kid sick. And I'm like, what? What? And we had this big theological rule. I was like, no. The Lord at times uh, lifts the hedge. The Lord at times allows sifting. The Lord at times allows trials. The Lord at times allows difficulty. But the character of God will never cause pain or uh, discomfort or ugliness in your life. He is not the root of your suffering. Satan is. And we live in a world where Satan is really ruling, but not forever. Romans 8, 29 actually talks about God conforming those of us who are in Christ into the likeness of Jesus. In fact, if you show me a person full of self-confidence, I will show you a person who will ultimately fail. Show me a person who is truly surrendered before God, and I'll show you a person who's going to carry the presence and purpose of God into their sphere all around them. I'm going to pick on my friend Clive a minute because I love him. He's the chairman of our elder board. I love Clive. Love this guy. He is one of the most humble guys before the Lord, but before people, he is full of confidence. I mean, full of confidence to the point where you're like, oh, gosh, he's tough. But before God, there's this surrendered heart. And so when I'm looking around for either elders of the church or friends or people I want to put myself with, The people that I am looking for are people whose hearts are so surrendered to the Lord Jesus where it's going, Lord, you are preeminent, not me. Your purposes are preeminent, not mine. I want to walk with you. I want to be a part of your kingdom. We're not going to build a church around a person or a persons. We're going to build a church around reaching a city, around King Jesus. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, so what's Jesus saying there? And when you have turned back, what did Jesus know on the onset? Jesus knew that Simon Peter was going to fail. He knew that he was going to fall. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He also knew that he would ultimately turn My third point is that Jesus knew Peter would fail, but he also knew that he would turn back. And I'm going to move right on past that because I want to park on my fourth point for a few minutes. This is a little bit complex, but I think it's a beautiful, it's actually one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Will you go ahead and put that fourth point up, Paul? It's letting the eyes of Jesus find you. In order to do that, I want to read our next little chunk which is still in uh, Luke 22, but go on down to verse 54. I love what's about to happen here, by the way. This is like probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Verse 54, Then seizing him, they led him away, talking about Jesus. They took him into the house of the high priest, and who followed? Peter. Peter followed at a distance. And when some were there, had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Who sat with them? Peter, all right. A servant girl, a little servant girl, little, 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 little servant girl, sees Peter seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, Jesus. 
but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw Peter and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter said. In fact, one of the Gospels, he actually swears. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, here it is, here it is. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61. The Lord Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now Peter is in this moment. Peter is in this spot where he is literally... um, being sifted. He is uh, denying his Jesus. The rooster crows. It all comes back. Remember he just sat at the table and what was he so cocky about? Oh, I'll go with you to where? Prison. Oh, I'll go with you to where? Death. Oh, I'm here, man. I am like rock solid. I am the dude. I am full of self. And this little servant girl goes, oh, it was you. You're one of them. You're one of them. And he denies him, not once, not twice, but three times. But the eyes of Jesus find him. And I think the eyes of Jesus, if I can shift something in your mental paradigm here a minute today, it's that I don't think Jesus looked at him with, oh, I told you so, which he could have. I don't think Jesus looked at him like, oh, you dirtbag, I can't believe you did it. I think Jesus actually looked at him with eyes of conviction, I'd say, yeah. I'd even say there may have been some displeasure in those eyes. But quickly on the other side of that little flash of conviction and displeasure would have been grace, would have been hope, would have been a calling. Finally, Simon Peter, finally, you are coming to the end of yourself. Finally, you are coming to a place where I can take you and I can make you the first pastor of the first church in the epicenter of Christianity from which all other things will go forth. In my own life, when I find myself in sin of any kind, when I find myself in a trial of any kind, when I find myself in pain, when I find myself downtrodden, when I find myself depressed, when I find myself being sifted at any level, you know what I look for? The eyes of my Jesus. Because it's in those eyes that there's peace. It's in those eyes that there's hope. It's in those eyes that there's life. And you know what? All of the Bible, all of humanity runs and hides when we sin, don't we? Think with me for a second. Stay with me. I remember being 10 years old, and my sister and I were playing with my mom's lipstick. She was putting it on. And we got it all over these new white towels. The towels got hung up. Michael, what did you do? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. We learned to lie really fast, don't we? We learned to hide really fast. Go back to the garden at the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, what'd they do? Hide. We learn to lie, we learn to cover, we learn to hide. But God comes into the garden 
and he wants to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He wants relationship. He wants to connect. He wants, it's those eyes of Jesus looking for the eyes of Simon Peter. Because it's in that connection that life happens. In our family, we work so hard with our kids not to develop a place where they're disciplined for being honest, open, authentic, and coming forward with their failure, but rather a place where when you come forward, we will join you no matter how big or small your failure is and help you clean up the mess. Now, if you hide it, that's a different story. Listen to me today, church. I don't know where you are, but if you'll find the eyes of your Jesus, you might even have something in your life that he needs to sweep out and he wants you to clean up. But instead of hiding, if you will find the eyes of Jesus, you will find forgiveness, you will find grace, you will find peace. You may be in a situation today where you're under such duress, where you're scared, where a family member is sick or even has passed away, where you have a job or kids or you fill in the blank. But if you will find the eyes of Christ Jesus, he will meet you and he will carry you. Luke 24, 34, and I want to end with this. A couple chapters later. We actually just preached on this on the Emmaus Road, but Luke 24, verses 34 said, and this is where Mary and Cleopas, if you'll remember, they came running back to Jerusalem. And they said, it is true, the Lord has risen. That's what the disciples were saying. And he has appeared to Simon. Now, the Lord Jesus appeared to Simon, and I don't know what happened when he appeared to Simon. This was after Jesus rose from the dead. So Peter denied him. Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose. And there was some private exchange between Peter and the Lord Jesus. It's not even written in Scripture. We just know from that little passage that the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And here's what I want to call you to today. Wherever you are, you may need to find the eyes of Jesus. You may even need to start a new paradigm or a new model of, of thinking and behaving in your life where you're not going to run and hide when you find yourself in sin, but instead you're going to open up and come to the saving grace of Jesus. He's not going to beat you up or punish you. He's going to welcome you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to love on you. And then he's going to call you and he's going to send you just like he sent Simon Peter. Will you stand with me and let's worship the Lord.